and welcome to Overinvested, a podcast about pop culture obsessions. I'm Gavia, and here's my co-host Morgan. Hello. This week we're going to talk about Spider-Man Homecoming, the new Spider-Man reboot, the second one in not very many years. Um, fortunately, Homecoming is really great. It's definitely the best uh, Marvel movie of their quote-unquote phase three thing where, you know, they have their different phases of the franchise where they release dozens and dozens of sequels and this is a franchise crossover with Sony. And the reason I'm even bothering to kind of mention all that behind the scenes stuff is this is literally the first movie where Marvel has managed to properly connect the world building in their franchise in a way that feels meaningful to the narrative instead of it being like, hey, we've thrown a bunch of characters together or a really shallow connection. So it's like, well done. Um, And also it's super charming. Tom Holland is the young actor playing Peter Parker. Emphasis on young because he is like 20. He does actually look and act like a teenager. He's got this kind of youthful energy. And um, it's like a really big contrast with most superhero movies which star men in their 30s and 40s. And also kind of with the last two Spider-Man franchises, both of which have their strengths. I mean, obviously the original Sam Raimi Spider-Man movies are much better um, with Tobey Maguire as a rather kind of tearful an angsty type of Spider-Man who was perhaps not enormously convincing as a teenager, but they left him <laughs> out of high school very quickly. And then the next franchise where Andrew Garfield himself is a great actor, but the films themselves uh, were not good. Um, so best left forgotten, sadly. <laughs> um, but yeah, this one, the idea is that we have abandoned the origin story because everyone fucking knows how to make Spider-Man and if they don't, it doesn't matter. He's a 15-year-old high schooler and he has been Spider-Man for a while, but he's not really sure what to do with his powers. So um, in Captain America Civil War, Tony Stark basically recruited him to join his team in his fight against Captain America, which was extremely irresponsible because he was just recruiting a teenage boy to fight this really complicated like physical and political fight with a bunch of adults that he didn't really understand. And because Peter obviously idolises Iron Man like every kind of nerdy kid in the MCU must, he ends up embroiled in this and now he's really excited about the concept of being an Avenger. But obviously because Tony Stark has a very short attention span, and has about 15 different projects at once. He basically just kind of forgets and ignores Peter. And meanwhile, Peter is left behind at home in Queens with his Aunt May going to high school. And then every day he's so convinced that he's going to get to join the Avengers. So it's kind of, yeah, he's kind of left on the sidelines of superherodom with powers that he could potentially use, but no idea how to use them because he's just trying to fight like petty crime. And then this new villain called the Vulture shows up and he's such a well-drawn villain, way better than most of the recent Marvel villains by far, um, because he's just this regular guy who worked for a salvage company and then lost his job after Tony Stark made an agreement with a government agency to do post-superhero battle cleanup instead. So the Vulture, played by Michael Keaton, decides to set up a low-level arms dealership where he sells superhero alien-type weapons to criminals. And that is kind of the basic premise of the movie. We will probably be discussing spoilers throughout, so we're going to assume that you've probably seen the movie. Yes, it made around $120 million in America alone this weekend, so I think most people have already seen this film. It's been extremely successful. Um, I was walking down the street in Edinburgh the other day, and... There were two young women walking behind me and one of them was telling her friend how much she had loved this movie and that, you know, unlike the other Marvel movies, which are kind of like, eh, okay, this one she thought was so amazing and I just thought this is the state of affairs. Like everyone goes to these movies 
but no one actually really likes them. I mean, of course, some people do, but most people don't. And then this one came along and actually was really good and was so refreshing. Obviously, Wonder Woman just came out, and that's another superhero movie that people are very passionate about and are really enjoying on the other side of the DC Marvel sort of war. But most superhero films that have come out for the past several years, to me, have not been that interesting to watch. Logan is another kind of exception, but I don't really count that because it's a very different kind of film. Although if you do, this year has been a banner year for superhero films, I guess. And I found this really, really refreshing because it is really sharply written. It is really, really funny. And I think because it is such a convincing portrayal of a teenager as someone who is slightly older than a teenager, I felt genuinely concerned for him throughout the film. And I would imagine that people who are teenagers would watch it and identify with him or at least recognize someone who's like someone they know or et cetera, et cetera. So I think it was really clever of them to go that route as opposed to casting someone who is, you know, 27 or 28 or however old Andrew Garfield was at the time when they, I mean, it was ridiculous that they cast him in that role. He, he looked like an adult because he was one. It's just was so pleasant to watch an actual kid behaving like a kid. Yeah, and they really, the whole story is like predicated on him being a kid. Yes. He's got this kind of teenage overconfidence. Like he's not an overconfident person. Obviously he is still kind of a nerdy teenager who feels um, like a bit of a social outcast and is nervous talking to girls and all that stuff. But also it's like when you're a teenager, your decision-making skills are not great. So he doesn't really see any problem in the idea of him joining the Avengers and fighting, you know, huge murderous robots. <laughs> and meanwhile, obviously Tony Stark is not particularly paying attention to him because Tony Stark is like not a great father figure slash mentor. But like if you're watching it as an adult, you're like, obviously he's not going to let him join the Avengers because that would be like an insanely stupid idea. But this whole youthfulness and the fact that it's like a really humorous and also quite sensitive movie is genuinely just like a pleasant surprise because the creative background for this film wasn't particularly promising. It's a crossover between two studios, so it's very corporate. It has six people credited on the writing team, which is not usually a good sign. It means it's been rewritten by dozens of different people, all of whom are like a 40-year-old white guy named John. I swear to God, there were like four different guys named John working on this movie. Um, (laughs) The director is basically the archetypal example of these really inexperienced directors who get hired on franchise movies. So his name is John Watts. He made two very small films that no one has seen, one of which was a kind of horror movie and the other one was about a bunch of kids stealing a car. It was kind of like a crime film. And Kevin Feige, the Marvel producer, recruited him at some film festival. It was basically just like, okay, you're making Spider-Man. And for once, he is the situation where it's like a stop clock is right twice a day because he made this really great, very individual film that kind of does the opposite of all these rather bland superhero blockbusters where usually it's like a very generic type of hero follows a formulaic story and against some apocalyptic threat that doesn't really have any personal um, importance to them and often the villains are really two-dimensional whereas in this one they gave the villain a really solid politically interesting origin story with also Michael Keaton is like a really kind of fun actor to be playing him because he's got this kind of middle-aged dad vibe but because Peter's just a kid a middle-aged dad with a large gun is scary enough for him to be a plausible villain. But also it just feels like a lot more intimate because it's like tied up in the normal problems of a teenager and it just feels like a teen movie. 
and it is really refreshing and they managed to make this quite overdone franchise feel new and it's just really pleasant to watch that. I noticed the six screenwriters thing too and I was totally shocked because the script feels really, really tight and like it was written by one or two people. I mean, superhero movies these days or big blockbusters are never written by only one person, but it really did feel like it had been very carefully constructed, which obviously was not the case. I mean, a lot of care obviously went into it, but when that many people are credited on something, as you say, it means it has been written and rewritten and rewritten. And that made me even more impressed with John Watts, the director, because that signifies to me that he did an extra good job sort of shepherding the whole thing into something that worked. And presumably also Amy Pascal, who used to be the head of Sony and now is a producer and produced this film as she did the previous Spider-Man films, because there must have been behind the scenes stuff going on that then led to this excellent film. So whatever it was, they were on top of it. The actors are all fantastic. There's a huge young cast, which I imagine can sometimes be tough, and all of them give really great performances. So, I mean, I don't particularly care what all the, you know, whatever that might have been, but it just made it even even more impressive accomplishment to me, particularly given the fact that it is this relatively inexperienced guy. And the film looks really good. It's not especially flashy, but I think it's very, very competently directed in a way that makes it move along in a very nice clip. It's very, very well paced. I think the humor and the action are quite evenly balanced. The action isn't the most thrilling thing I've ever seen, but I never felt the way I did at the end of Wonder Woman, where that final battle at the end of Wonder Woman is so unbelievably dire and so boring. And I didn't feel that way with any of the action scenes in this. And I think Um, that's partly because they did steer away from these really like massive bombastic CGI fight scenes. Yes. Like obviously it has a bunch of CGI because all films do. But if you have someone like Tom Holland, who's a really good physical performer, like he's a dancer, he's an athlete. He can do kind of the physical humor and the fight stuff that you need for Spider-Man, which is kind of a specific skill and is different from just being like an actor who can convincingly play a cute teenager. And they kind of focused on that more. And there's a lot less of the kind of really intense action you expect. Like, it's barely even an action movie. It's more like a teen movie superhero film kind of crossover. Yes. Yeah. And I think you get a lot of that with the group teen cast that they have assembled, which is really delightful, particularly his best friend, who is just so funny and such a kind of archetype too. And their relationship is really wonderful. And then, of course, Zendaya plays uh, his sort of future love interest, but just one of the supporting cast in this movie. And she is truly a delight. She's so great. Oh, my (laughs) God. And it's Um, also amazing for Zendaya personally, because, I mean, I've never watched her Disney Channel show because, like, I'm... 27 so it's not really good right. but like I'm very aware of Zendaya as a media figure like she's a cool yeah. kind of role model and she seems really fun and she's also extremely glamorous and it's really cool that her kind of film breakout role 
is the least glamorous person you will ever see in a superhero movie. She has kind of scrunchy hair. She doesn't wear makeup. Like I think possibly even the actress may not have been wearing makeup, which is practically unheard oh, of, but it did look I'm like- I'm sure she was wearing makeup. Oh no, makeup. I mean, probably because like cameras are pointing at her, but it was like the most minimal no makeup makeup you can possibly have. It wasn't like, oh, she looks perfect. And if she's socially kind of weird, she's always reading some like giant feminist tome and like making political comments and creeping out. I mean, there were several different photo shoots where the cast were posing like the cast of The Breakfast Club. And it really is like that because they have extraneous cast members basically like you kind of need Peter to have like a friend and a love interest you know but Zendaya and like several of the other teen characters they just had them and it just makes his life seem more realistic instead of him just being this like isolated figure whose entire life goes on in the superhero stuff but Morgan did have we talked about Miles Morales and the comic inspiration for his friend and stuff no okay so I mean I know of it so why don't you explain Okay, so this is one of the criticisms which I completely agree with, which has kind of been leveled at this film, which is that it basically takes Peter Parker and transposes him into the Miles Morales comics. So Miles Morales was created like five years ago. He's the replacement for Peter Parker. He is a New York black Latino teenager who's I think about 14 when the books start. Like he looks really young. He looks like a kid. Um, He goes to a really academic charter school and his best friend is a guy named Ganka who is basically exactly the character you see in this movie. Like visually they look exactly the same. He's like an overweight Asian kid. They're both really obsessed with Lego. They have a very similar dynamic in the comics. And also obviously Peter goes to this really racially diverse academic school, which is exactly the same as in the comics. So a lot of people want there to be a Miles Morales movie for obvious reasons that he's a really great character. There's too many Peter Parker movies and Marvel needs to have more movies that aren't about a white guy. And the fact that this film has been made makes it a lot harder to ever make a Miles Morales solo movie because they've basically stolen every element of Miles Morales's background and story apart from his parents. So they'd have to really significantly change him in order to do that, which I mean, I don't think they were likely to make that movie anyway because Peter Parker is such a massive property and they're very greedy, but um, it would have been great to see that. And this really has sort of ruled that from happening, which is unfortunate. Yeah, it seems to me that that would have been way more likely as a television show, right? Because it like they're always going to make Peter Parker movies. Yeah. Like, that's just a fundamental fact. Unfortunately. Um, <laughs> right. But but that doesn't... The, but the point still stands. Yeah. That, I mean, like, it would have made a great a TV show, show because it's like the high right. school setting and now they can't really do that because yeah. it's just so close. Like, it really is functionally identical. Well, and the, other, the sort of interesting thing about the movie, too, is that I think Tom Holland is easily the best thing about this film. And I think it's a very good film, but I think he is absolutely fantastic. I think he's going to be a huge star. I've seen him in a, in small roles in a couple other things, and he's been really good in all of them. And I had already kind of thought, yeah, this kid's going to be a big thing and then obviously now he's doing this because that is how people become famous these days at least white men is by doing superhero movies and he is just so wonderful but the movie really is about him and that sounds self-evident because of course all these movies are about their protagonists but even though it has this big racially diverse cast 
which is such a sort of relief and a thrill to see, particularly because it actually feels like what Queens feels like. They're all really, really orbiting him, often in quite a distant way. So the thing that I noticed the most was that the female characters in the film really don't have much to do at all, like any of them. So Zendaya's character, Michelle... I mean, she's definitely a supporting character. I was surprised by how minor her role was. Right. She is basically... I mean, to the teen audience, she is by far the most famous person in this movie. (laughs) I mean, apart from Robert Downey Jr. But yeah, she is very famous. (laughs) Right. And so she has a very minor role. And I thought she was totally a delight. And I thought the styling stuff you were thinking about with her being very unglamorous was really shocking to me because I also seen a lot of photos of her at public events and she was almost unrecognizable to me. It's just really not a glamorous role in a way I found really refreshing, but she's not in it that much. There's Aunt May who doesn't have a whole lot to do. The stuff she has is really lovely, but she doesn't have a big role. It's Marissa Tomei playing her who is uh, you know a goddess i really and liked then... that they gave her a makeover for this film because when they introduced her there i mean there were loads of jokes about her being like sexy aunt may because when they introduced her in civil war um she and tony have this rather bizarre scene where they're like flirting with each other and it's also like why is she not more bothered that tony stark has kidnapped her teenage nephew and it's like hanging out in his room it's weird um but also she's kind of she's got this very kind of generic like attractive middle-aged women look with like kind of a big blowout highlighted hair and stuff and in this she looks kind of like a hipster mom like she's wearing high-waisted trousers and a really obviously like selected look in practically every scene and she's got like this pin straight hair she has like a really specific look that I feel like you can kind of pin onto a type of person that you would see in real life in New York yeah rather than it just being like generic mom yeah I liked that a lot she looked like a real person in a big way to me but she didn't have that much to do and then the Peter's love interest, who is this very pretty girl he has a crush on named Liz, yes? Yeah, Liz. Also is basically just there to be pretty. Yeah, she's just like a nice distant girl that yeah. Peter has a crush on and he doesn't know her very well. I mean, it's fine. Like, I wasn't yeah. bothered, especially by the writing, but she does not have very much to do. And I think... largely this is because the movie is really all about Peter. He's got the friend who does have a lot of screen time and a real personality and that's probably the the biggest secondary character. And then the vulture, Michael Keaton, is really well done and, as you said, feels more like a sort of plausible villain than any of the Marvel villains have since Loki because they're all dire. But it's so much just about this one person and what's going on with him and his charisma and all of this stuff. And that's largely why the movie works because he is so charismatic and he is such a good performer and all the writing for him is so great. Like he, you, by the end of the movie, you feel completely like, you know, this person inside and out, but that means that the other characters often don't get very much to do. And that isn't even necessarily a problem so much, but particularly given that there aren't that many women in it by the end of the movie like it hadn't been bothering me and then we I kind of got to the end and I thought huh they really didn't get that much at all 
Well, what I like, there like, really was minimal minimal stuff, and I kind of was like, mm, I don't know about that. I mean, regarding that point, it's interesting to kind of see the way it balances out because you're completely right in that Tom Holland is fantastic as Peter Parker and they've drawn that character and his story so well. And it also kind of highlights the incremental and really slow way that these franchises are able to accept having multiple female characters and having a diverse cast, right? Because this is by far the most racially diverse Marvel movie and like it noticeably so among the young cast. And also kind of, you know, there's like, there's three whole women in it, plus some female sporting characters, which is more than you get in some of these types of movies. But at the same time, once you think about it, the only people who have any real impact on the story are definitely just white men again. So it's like, yeah, you say that um, Peter's best friend is probably the main secondary character, but I don't think it really is. I think it's Happy Hogan, who's Tony's driver and kind of security chief, who's been in a bunch of the Iron Man movies. Um, He directed the first couple of Iron Man movies as well. Because his job is that he's basically the kind of long-suffering babysitter that Tony Stark has recruited to look after Peter. And like Peter's constantly texting him like, when can I join the Avengers? And he has a ton of screen time. And I don't have anything particularly against the character, but um, he's basically straight playing a straight man to like an annoying teenager Joe character. And he's not particularly interesting from a narrative standpoint. He does get like a disproportionate amount of screen time. Like he's definitely in the film a lot more than Liz or Zendaya, for example, and, and from Aunt May. So they've managed like this <laughs> early step of let's cast lots of people of colour in supporting roles in the background and then also have this film which really hinges on the impact that Tony Stark and the Avengers have had on the lives of Peter and Happy Hogan and the Vulture played by Michael Keaton. And it all kind of hinges around Peter from a narrative standpoint and then from like a world building standpoint, it's all about Tony Stark. Yeah, I would push back on the happy thing a little bit because he definitely, I don't, we'd have to like calculate the minutes. I <laughs> feel like he does not have as much screen time as the best friend. Do we remember who, what his name is? I've totally spaced. I it's don't Ned know why Leeds, we... I think. Okay. Um, but also his, he has a plot function, which is to basically like, corral Peter when Tony it doesn't want to pay attention to him. But also the screen time he does have is as pure comic relief. Yeah, he's right? the, I guess I guess like maybe he doesn't have that much influence. He is more just like present. I mean, right. I do feel like he does probably have more screen time. He is in there a bunch. But it's but, yeah. often anyway. like <laughs> often like often Peter will call him and he doesn't pick up. Or it'll be or like they'll cut to him and he's like doing something with something for Tony. Um, and I was surprised by how much he was in the film for sure. And I don't think they really needed him, but I didn't feel that he was like overwhelming the movie in any way. I think the point about Tony is almost more relevant in that he has a massive impact on the movie and the happy almost as an extension, as an extension of him. Although weirdly Tony really works because... Yeah. There was a lot of concern that he was going to overshadow this movie, which is definitely the number one problem they had with Civil War, because it was meant to be a story about Captain America and Bucky Barnes. And they were like, no, we're going to have this whole thing with Tony Stark. And it turned the movie into an overblown mess. Whereas in this, Tony's influence makes itself known throughout the whole thing. And it's all built up on the way that he has shaped the world in the MCU. But in terms of screen time, it's relatively minimal. And it really works like that because he's this distant celebrity in Peter's life. Yes. And 
then you get into this strange series of chains of events where almost everything that actually happens in this film happens because Peter has fucked something up. But then also the root cause of that is that Tony gave him this insane like weapon basically. And then was like, um, I'm going to leave now. I have stuff to do. So (laughs) the whole plot is, I mean, obviously Michael Keaton is doing bad things, but there's a lot of sort of self-inflicted wounds (laughs) going on, which actually works really well because the movie is trying to get at this point of they don't they don't utter the line with great power comes great responsibility but that's what they're getting at because that's the theme yeah. of every single And Spider-Man this one is story. about the process of Peter learning that because Tony is such a bad mentor it like comes <laughs> back around and he's like a reverse mentor because he's he's constantly yes. absent and like just explain for I guess there's probably some people who haven't seen the movie who are listening um the weapon that Morgan's mentioning is Tony builds an Iron Man style Spidey suit for Peter. So obviously it looks like a normal Spider-Man suit, but it's got stuff in the eyes so he can um, like look at stuff with laser vision or what have you. And like he has, and it has like a computer in it and it has all these different functions. And about halfway through the film, Peter figures out that he can hack the suit and unlock all of the other functions that Tony put in it closed over with a thing called the training wheels protocol um so as soon as he unlocks these for an emergency he discovers that tony's put in all these completely ridiculously dangerous weapons and it's like do you want to switch on death mode and all this stuff so he's got like an interrogation voice that sounds like the batman begins christian bale voice and he's got you know all these kind of laser webs and like things where he can literally kill people and of course peter is terrified and he's like no i don't want this switch it off but the fact that Tony put that stuff in automatically in the first place is hilarious because it's so in character for him to try and solve something with technology and then basically abandon a project halfway through because he just is so flighty. Tony's entire role was so well characterized for the irresponsible nature he has in the movies. Um, And I really like that because I think at this point, having him as a protagonist is completely played out. We've already seen the inside of Tony Stark's life and it's much more interesting to see the impact he has from a perspective like outside that, which in this case is Peter personally still really idolizes Tony. But as someone watching the film, especially as someone who is older than a teenager, I'm like, this man is so bad. (laughs) He's a terrible influence and he needs to be kept away from anyone who has any kind of like vulnerability. Because although (laughs) Peter, like Tony has the best of intentions, which is the problem, because I was mentioning this in my review and I'm actually kind of working on another piece about it right now because it's just so ridiculous. But basically every time Tony tries to do something good, everything gets just so much worse because you know he makes the iron man suit and it's like okay you've used this to resolve your personal conflict and because you're very rich law enforcement's just like okay you you can just blow someone up with your robot suit but then by the time you get to civil war tony's like oh yeah i'm in the side of good now because i don't manufacture weapons anymore so instead he's like making helicarriers for shield which turns out to be hydra and they were going to kill everyone in america then in the next time round he's making a robot army in age of ultron which practically nearly ends the world and then in civil war he's like oh people can be so irresponsible with their superpowers what we really need is government oversight and it's like first of all 
it's good that you've recognized this, but definitely you do not have any oversight. You're still just screwing everything up because you're too rich to receive any kind of punishment for your actions. But also I feel like even the Marvel movies have acknowledged pretty clearly that the US government is not very good at overseeing stuff because it's going to end up in a kind of authoritarian disaster. And this movie is him being like, well, I do have responsibility for Peter now, so I'm going to fob him off with uh, Happy Hogan as, as his new babysitter, and I'll leave him with this lethal weapon, and I'm sure he'll just learn how to be a superhero, because I was really independent, because I went to MIT at 12 and became an alcoholic. And it's like, you know what? I don't know if that's true. <laughs> but it is perfectly well written for the way he would behave, and also the way Peter would respond, because he really wants to be useful. And he doesn't have kind of the adult decision-making capabilities to realize that this entire situation is a huge disaster in the making. <laughs> right. And he doesn't have a dad. So, of course, there's this, like, incredibly famous, genius, like, superhero man who's like, you're very special. I'm going to give you a special thing. Like, no wonder <laughs> he just wants to prove himself. And meanwhile, Tony is off doing whatever it is that he's doing upstate as they say (laughs) and it turns out very poorly but I think one of the really wonderful things about that performance is that Tom Holland is 20 the character is meant to be 15 when they said that I did kind of laugh to myself because he could very plausibly pass for a couple years younger than 20 I mean, he looks like he's 20, but you can suspend your Yeah, disbelief. I mean, he looks youthful enough but, that he can be a teenager. Right. But when they said he was 15, I was like, yeah, okay. I've <laughs> seen some 15-year-olds. They don't have six packs. <laughs> uh-huh. um, he looks more like 15 than your average Hollywood attempt at 15, which is yes, the most we yes. can hope for, probably. <laughs> Obviously. It was just a little funny to me. But I think because... Like, it's the perfect sweet spot, right? Because he obviously looks young enough that he's plausibly a teenager. But he's just old enough that he is evidently self-aware enough to be able to play that age with an awareness of um, the time that has passed, if that makes any sense. Like, he can play the stupid teenager stuff in a way that he clearly understands what's stupid about it. And I mean that both in terms of the pure comedy stupidity (laughs) and the more emotional stuff where Peter really genuinely is having trouble with things and doesn't understand them, which, of course, some prodigy children would be able to do, but I think it is easier for someone who's a little bit older. And I think that it was really nice that they actually cast someone who looks young to do that because it is really effective coming from a younger person as opposed to someone who is like 28 years old right and does make you more anxious watching it like I was so anxious during so much of this movie which makes it sound like an unpleasant experience which wasn't at all it was so much fun to watch but you are genuinely concerned for his well-being which is not ever the case with these movies at least for me anymore because you know they're not going to die right like nothing's going to happen to them and of course I knew nothing was going to happen to him because this is number one out of a series of god only knows how many films but because he is a kid I just kept thinking like oh no I mean it's stressful when he you know gets sent to the principal's office or something (laughs) it's like it, it just really does understand how to make low stake stuff matter and 
it's truly astonishing how many superhero films seemingly do not understand that extremely basic element of storytelling, especially in the whole environment of superhero comics where obviously loads of them are about people kind of duking it out in space, but usually there's slice of life stuff in there as well. And a lot of the films are extremely incompetent at doing slice of life stuff. I mean, Ant-Man attempted it by having Ant-Man's kind of motivation being his daughter and the fact that he's like separate from his daughter, but it was so ham-fisted, it didn't really work. And with Doctor Strange, it was just like, this is not a person. (laughs) Oh God. And I mean, Benedict Cumberbatch is a pretty good actor. So it's like, it it wasn't his fault either. I mean, he couldn't really do the accent, but apart from that, God help him, he tried. I think the accent depleted around 50% of his acting ability, which was a problem. It was unfortunate. Oh dear. Anyway. (laughs) There's a possibility they might not make any more uh, Doctor Strange movies, so we can hope. (laughs) Oh, please, Jesus, my God. But I think this also gets back to the, the villain issue, right? Which is that Michael Keaton plays a guy who has been screwed over by capitalism <laughs> oh, the one percent there's a wonderful class divide between him and tony stark very effective <laughs> yeah and his motivation isn't to end the world or to enslave the world or you know whatever the fuck it's to run an illegal business out of a warehouse in brooklyn to make money to have a nice suburban house which is way more understandable and believable than I want to open the sky and bring in an alien army to enslave the entire planet. And like, (laughs) The Avengers is one of the best Marvel films, and Loki is a great villain, but this is on a more relatable scale, shall we say. And even the sort of big climactic thing in the big climactic battle is just him trying to steal something from a plane instead of a truck. Right? So that helps the movie a lot I think because you can't have a movie about a teenager especially the first movie about a teenager attempting to be a superhero that's genuinely about a teenager in a real way like have him try to face down a world ending event the scale just wouldn't balance out at all it doesn't work and the consequence of that is the movie actually does feel like it matters more particularly once you know spoiler alert you find out that Michael Keaton is Peter's girlfriend's dad, which is a great twist that I did not see coming at all. I was like, oh, this is wonderful. So it feels very intimate, and it feels like it's all taking place within this small universe of this kid's life. That was just so refreshing compared to a lot of the other films of this nature that have come out recently. But they also have, they get to sort of have their cake and eat it too, because there is there are a couple shots of this plane sort of coming in really close to New York that I think for many people and certainly for anyone who has lived in New York, you you can't help but think about 9-11 with a shot like that, but they don't actually blow up the city. They just kind of reference that, right? And it was just so much better. (laughs) It also made me really surprised and, you know, it was great, but it was like, it made me really surprised that we haven't really seen a film that kind of illustrates how difficult it is to figure out how to fight crime because that is kind of an inherent part of having a teenage superhero and obviously the Spider-Man franchises kind of do start with him figuring out how to use his powers and stuff but with this one it assumes that he already knows how to use his powers 
But if you think about kind of the average 15 year old, he's not in a super bad neighborhood. He's just in like a normal, I guess, like working class neighborhood in Queens living with his aunt. He doesn't have any exposure to crime or danger. And he has to try and find out how to fight crime independently as just a teenager in a suit. And he has to do it like (laughs) during work hours because he has to be home in bed in the evening. So you have this like montage of him trying to fight crime after school finishes at 2.45 p.m. So he like gets on the subway and then he gets home and he changes and then he runs out and he's just kind of stumped because it's not like there's people getting mugged in alleys, which apparently happens 15 times a night in like the three block radius around Daredevil's house. Um, so he's like, he's trying, he saves like a stolen bike where he can't find the person it was who needs it. So he just like puts a note on it. He like tries to stop a car theft that's just someone going into their own car and he gives an old lady directions and she gives him a snack. And it's like, that is the level that you're at. And it really reminded me of Hannah Blumenreich's Spidey comics. Um, she's a fan artist, but she did get to do some professional Marvel work this year because her comics are just so, so popular. And they are exactly the tone of this film. She draws Spider-Man as really... Um, he's a teenager still, he's loving with Aunt May, but he she draws him as really small. He's like short, he's got like a snub nose and he looks like a kid and he's always doing dumb kid stuff. And like, he's doing all the kind of quips that you expect from Spider-Man, but it's just really youthful. And that's kind of what this was like. Um, and he does stuff like, you know, he helps a teenage girl who gets street harassed, but he's not exactly sure how to go about it. And that's the sort of thing that you see in this movie. Um, and it's just like a really obvious concept, but it's only obvious if you're really like digging into the kind of thing that Spider-Man could be doing rather than just looking at it kind of outwardly and picking tropes out that are really obvious from the comics. Yeah. Yeah. It was pleasantly engaged with reality, I would say. And I still think we were discussing this before we started recording. I haven't seen the Sam Raimi Spider-Man films in a really, really long time. And we'll probably do an episode on them relatively soon. I still think the second one in particular is the best Spider-Man film. But I have again, I haven't seen them in so long that I can't really swear to that at this point. But the thing that they have that I think is so great that most superhero movies, or not any of them really, have anymore is a sort of visual grandiosity about them that like Marvel films just do not have because they don't let the directors do anything particularly visually interesting. But the exchange from that is that a lot of those really realistic small details just aren't in those movies, which is fine. They're doing a different thing, but it's nice that then this one is doing that because it has to be different. Like they don't want to be remaking those. I mean, they literally are remaking those old movies. They want to be doing something different because you can't improve on them. So go in a different direction and that'll be more interesting to watch. It is a little bit sad for Andrew Garfield that he just wasted years of his life on those horrible films and now no one will ever remember them. But it's also probably good that no one will ever remember them because they were not the finest hour of anyone involved. But I'm really pleased that we have have something more positive to think about with this character now because he's one of the better ones, I think. As we've talked about, I really like those other films when I was a kid and it's nice to... Nice to think that the the young'uns will have this one now, because it's a very pleasant film. Before we stop, I must also say that the Captain America cameos in this movie were truly delightful to me. Oh my word. Just, 
<laughs> so I have I have a theory, which is not a particularly insightful theory, but my theory for these cameos is that in that universe they were all filmed circa like 2012 because he's wearing like the cheesy old costume and I feel like that's at the point when the government could still manipulate him into doing some bullshit thing like so I like how they have styled it in a way that makes it really clear it's very early in his kind of oh Captain America process absolutely (laughs) absolutely no question I was absolutely dying I was laughing so much a a rare opportunity for Chris Evans to showcase some dry wit (laughs) (laughs) I oh also the crossover things they do with the other actors in these films often don't come off like sometimes they're just kind of like eh. I mean Chris um, Evans has had both of the good ones which is this right? one and then Thor Thor 2 where Loki transforms into Captain America for like one scene and it's really funny <laughs> I know I was like they need to give him more to do man <laughs> like oh we all know so we all know <laughs> I know oh my god It was was very, very enjoyable to me. I think that's all I have to say about this. Are we forgetting anything? Yeah, no, the only thing I have to say other than this is a question that I'm confused about, which is that at the beginning, when they have the flashback situation when Michael Keaton is pre-Vulture, he's cleaning up after the Battle of New York in the Avengers in 2012. And then the next flash screen is like eight years later. And then it's the present day. And I'm like, it's five years later. So I no longer understand how the chronology of the Marvel Universe works. Um, I don't think I have an answer for no. you. No, On that one. <laughs> I am confused by that. Maybe a listener will tell us. Hopefully it won't be one of those situations where 50 listeners tell us. But if you know, please tell me because I'm confused. And I googled it after the film came out and I haven't googled it since. But I was not given a satisfactory answer. That's very perplexing. Has more time passed in the MCU? I think less time has passed because I got the impression this film is only meant to take place a couple of months after Civil War. Yeah. So it's confusing. (laughs) (laughs) What time of year is Homecoming? Um, Well, oh, it has to be the end of the year because of... Well, no, actually, Homecoming is usually... (laughs) This is very perplexing to me now. Well, they're wearing clothes that signify in no way what time of the year it is. Homecoming would usually be in the fall for football, but there's no reference to sports at any time. Well, the academic decathlon team. (laughs) Right. And you would think that would be at the end of the year. So we're getting a lot of mixed signals about what's going on. Yeah, that part's a puzzler to me because I'm pretty sure it's not 2020. I think it's meant to be 2016 or 2017. Yeah. But there's this weird eight year. Yeah. It's a mystery. (laughs) Time has, has warped. Dr. Strange fucked it up. I think that's the answer. We're living in an alternate reality now. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. But next week, uh, (laughs) (laughs) next week, Morgan and I will be in Spain, but we will still be sending you a podcast because we're going to pre-record it. Hopefully. Yes. Um, That episode will be about the HBO sitcom Silicon Valley, which we will discuss spoilers in the kind of latter part of the episode, but if you've not watched the show, it will not really matter because it's a sitcom, so spoilers are not super relevant. And we will keep the actually spoilery stuff for the end. It's very good. Morgan, would you like to discuss the wonders of Silicon Valley? Oh, yes. (laughs) This is going to be a very enthusiastic podcast. Consider watching some episodes before next week. It is the the one sitcom about a bunch of obnoxious men 
where it's like the concept of it being about obnoxious men is intentional and built into the concept because it's set in Silicon Valley. So it's like, it's great. It's very good. (laughs) Yes. There's a lot going on. I don't need, we'll have to, we'll have to get into it. It's the gayest non-gay show on television. I think that's a good way to describe it. I mean, the romantic arc is between two men who do not express sexual interest towards each other. If that's right. Yeah, exactly. Or anyone for the most part. (laughs) And uh, Zach Woods. is just the funniest man. He is the funniest man. who's, Who's been in several other things. But this is his magnum opus, I believe. Oh, my word. Yeah, check it out. It gets better as it goes along, I think. It starts off good. I've seen most of it twice now, and the first time I watched it, I was like, this is pretty good. It's so marathonable. I I watched, like, the entire four-season run in, like, was it three seasons? Four seasons. Four seasons, yeah. I watched all four seasons in, like, two weeks or something, because it's a sitcom, and you can watch it really fast, and it's low stress most of the time, except when he's tanking his company, which is several times per season. But... uh, (laughs) Yeah, both Fantastic times I've depiction it. of the tech industry. It's really good satire, like on the same level as something like The Thick of It. But it also kind of, it fits within the US sitcom kind of framework. Yeah, it's just very satisfying. Recommended. But we'll go into further yeah. detail next week with, with sort of screams of enthusiasm. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but for this week, thank you very much for listening, as always. And if you enjoyed this episode please consider leaving a rating or review on iTunes. That's how we find new listeners. And otherwise you can find us on overinvestedpodcast.com on Twitter at overinvestedpod or on Tumblr at overinvestedpodcast. Thanks. Bye.